Hey gang, welcome to the Gale Athletics Connections podcast, the show that brings you the men and women of track and field and explores their unique stories. The show is brought to you by Gill Athletics. Head on over to gillathletics.com to find all your track and field equipment needs. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill. And guess what? It's July 25th, which means it is my birthday. So if you want to ever get in touch with me, uh, you can find me at Twitter, probably the easiest, at Mike Cunningham, M-I-K-E-C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M. I would love to hear from you today on Today of All Days. And you know what? I'm being super selfish. I am running a throwback episode when the great Joseph Frontier from Throw Big, Throw Far, Madison Throws Club, he interviewed me for his podcast, Throw Big, Throw Far, on his episode 49. So I thought for my birthday... I'm going to run my interview. I hope this brings value to you and gets to know uh, you get to know me just a little bit better and what I'm all about and why I do the things that I do. So without further ado, please help me welcome, well, myself, Mike Cunningham on the Throw Big, Throw Far podcast with Joe Frontier. This is the Throw Big, Throw Far podcast brought to you by throwbigthrowfar.com for throwers and coaches who want to get better. And by Madison Throws Club. Train with the best. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Throw Big, Throw Far podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This is Coach Joe Frontier. I hope that all of you are staying well out there. Um, A few things before we get started. I'm getting a lot of questions about Madison Throws Club this summer. If you're a Madison Throws Club diehard or you're in the Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, or want to travel to Madison, Wisconsin to train. Madison Throws Club is in a holding pattern, uh, like much of the world is. Um, The earliest we'll be able to uh, coach in our large group uh, format is July 1st, but obviously we'll wait and see what unfolds between now and then, and hopefully as I have information, I will get it to you. If you need help with video analysis or you want uh, in-person training on FaceTime, feel free to contact me. You can DM me on Instagram or track me down on throwbigthrowfar.com or Madison Throws Club. Check out our sponsors of the show. Porta Circle, a female lightweight circle. Easy to set up, easy to take down, sets up in a minute. Check out portacircle.com, porta-circle.com. Also, Roadie Sport. Check out R-O-D-H-E, roadiesport.com. If you need a shot put glove, wrist wrap, all those things that Justin makes, the shot put glove is a lifesaver. If you've got uh, a hand injury, finger injury, or you're training in the cold or training, training overweight influence, check out roadiesport.com. Today's guest is Coach Mike Cunningham. Uh, former Coach Mike Cunningham, I should say. He's with Gill Athletics and has been for a long time. Uh, and uh, he's a sales uh, uh, rep. I got to uh, know Mike uh, well because whenever I needed something um, that Gil made, I could get it from him quick, and he's always taking good care of me. But the story behind Mike is two things. One, um, he's a former college track coach and has a lot of track coaching experience, and he's got a great story to tell today. Uh, But also, uh, he has the Gil Athletics Connections podcast, which is just chock full of college coaches and high school coaches from all over the country, and it's a great resource for anybody who wants to learn more about track coaching. So check out the Gill Athletics uh, Connections podcast. I'm really excited about the stories that Mike tells from a personal standpoint, but also just the kind of guy he is. And I think that comes through in this interview. Um, without further ado, let's get Mike Cunningham on the line and let's get into it. Mike Cunningham, welcome to the Throw Big, Throw Far podcast. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. Super excited to be here, man. Well, uh, it was you were kind enough to have me on the show, and we had such a good time talking. I thought that uh, we should. I, I needed to get you on my podcast, so we're doing a little bit of a uh, a crossover here. But um, I just love chatting with you, and I have so many things to pick your brain. It was weird. I I usually do the question asking, so to be asked the questions on your podcast was kind of like, uh, oh man. So I'm happier. I'm happy to kind of recede to my normal role and putting you in the hot seat. Well, you did a great job, man. For someone who is used to the other side, you uh, you transitioned really well. It was that was a lot of fun. I'll be real honest with you. Uh, loved your story, and for those of you who are listeners to this podcast, and you get to hear Joe ask all these great people these questions, I would highly encourage you to go find out more about Joe. And of course, I'm going to say the best way is to go back to the Gill Athletics Connections podcast and uh, look for the Joe Frontier episode because it was a lot of fun, super interesting to hear your background, man. So uh, thanks for having me kind of flipping this, flipping the script on me and doing a podcast swap. Now I'm, I'm here on the hot seat with you. Well, and I want to echo that is uh, don't go to the Gill Athletic podcast to listen to my version or my episode. Uh, you've got some great coaches and there's some incredibly cool conversations that you had with coaches from all over the country. And uh, I think that's uh, it's just an incredibly cool resource for a track coach to hear other other coaches talk about um, their their trade and so thanks for bringing that to people you need to check out that podcast and maybe we'll finish talking a little bit more about the podcast uh, at the end of this one but uh good check out the uh, gill athletic connections podcast so mike let's go way back and i would love to kind of dig into how you got involved in sports and specifically track and field take us back to young mike cunningham <laughs> uh, you know, I'm getting to that age where that was a long time ago. <laughs> you and me uh, both. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to get to your hairstyle, man. I'm, I'm cutting it on purpose. <laughs> um, you know, for me, um, I don't have that story of parents who were track athletes and uh, I was an only child, so there's no brothers and sisters to emulate. Uh, I grew up in Alabama, and in Alabama, there are no professional sports, meaning no NFL, NBA, MLB, et cetera. So we live and die on college and high school football. So I, of course, played high school football. That was number one. Is almost you were given. Inescapable. If you a, absolutely. If you weren't a, a skater, you were a football player. That was it. That was basically like the two choices right there, right? Uh, so uh, was playing football and uh, got done my, my freshman year in uh, uh, fall semester. Spring semester, um, all that was on my mind was when does spring ball start, you know. Uh, but over the intercom, they had an announcement that if you wanted to participate in indoor track, meet Coach Anderson, Dennis Anderson, uh, after school in the uh, cafeteria and you know, I don't even think they said try. We definitely did not have tryout. It was just like, okay, you want to be on the team, you're on the team. And here's the sad truth to it, Joe. I literally was like, hmm, indoor track. How hard can that be? Like, that seems pretty <laughs> easy. This will be an easy way to get another letter for my letterman's jacket. I'm in. Uh, for everybody who knows track and field, I'm dead wrong. I mean, it was terrible. It was hard. Uh, I shouldn't say terrible, but uh, it felt terrible. That was my first time ever doing track. It was terrible. That's, that's how I got into track. And I was, uh, you know, I wasn't very good. So, uh, you know, sadly, like a lot of programs, 
I, I was a distance, <laughs> they threw me to the distance runner. So I was a half miler miler for most of my career until I kind of wisened up and saw how cool the hurdlers were. And I, my love for hurdles started uh, around that junior year. That's awesome. Um, so obviously football was the, stayed the, 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 the main thing and track embellished kind of what you were doing. What happens after high school and, and where did, where did those experiences in high school lead you? Yeah. High school was a fantastic time. Best friend in my whole world. My brother basically is you know from high school and uh, through track, ran all four years, played uh, football all four years, started the last two, just, you know, phenomenal. Uh, but, you know, didn't really know what I was going to do for college, to be real frank with you. Um, I actually uh, kind of, you know, my, my whole career is, has a kind of a general theme of God kind of moving me to the places that he wanted me to be uh, and me having no real idea until recently, like in the last, well, since I moved here, so the last 14, 15 years that he was really behind everything. Um, so I had no idea, you know, came from a pretty poor family, so we didn't have a college fund and uh, no one had ever went to college. So I had no idea coming close to graduation what I was going to do, you know. Uh, and then one day a, uh, in the fall of my senior year, a guy calls and asks if he, uh, if, if I got his packet for an Air Force ROTC scholarship. Um, now, my freshman year of high school, I had done JROTC for one semester and I quit after that. So I thought maybe there was a mistake. I was like, oh, no, sir. You know, I don't do J-ROD is what we called it. Um, so, you know, I'm not eligible for this. He goes, oh, no, no, this isn't for just people who do JROTC. This is for anybody. We're looking for leaders and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, well, okay, tell me more about that. And uh, it was like, yeah, you know, we pay for basically your whole school. <laughs> uh, so I applied. It was a thick old, I mean, <laughs> Air Force, they want to do everything. Um, this is pre-internet forms. Oh, yeah, it, this is the Scantron, man, of all this stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you had to apply. Uh, obviously, grades and extracurricular activities were considered. You had to go. I had to go to, um, I think it was Alabama State, and interview with the, um, uh, the major or the commandant of that uh, branch for, ROTC, for uh, Army ROTC there. Um, and basically, I, I ended up getting this, what they call a LET3 scholarship. So wherever I chose to go to college, the Air Force would pay for all my tuition, books, and fees for the last three years. But I had to pay for everything my freshman year and room and board for all four years. So yeah. huge, no yeah. doubt about it. But I still was stuck with what am I going to do? So uh, I looked at Auburn University and Troy University. Those were real uh, close schools to me where I grew up in Alabama. And then again, just this serendipity, fortuitousness. I get this packet from a school, never heard of it, called Illinois Institute of Technology. Every state has this type of Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, yep. uh, Massachusetts, MIT, right? This was Illinois' version. And they had a program, small school, but major, major engineering school, uh, that if you were an ROTC scholarship winner, they would pay for everything that scholarship didn't pay for, plus $500 a semester. That sounds like a good deal, Mike. Uh, found myself going to Chicago very quickly. <laughs> they bet. paid for tuition, room and board, everything, plus $500. Uh, the only catch, if there was a catch to it, was if you 
started your sophomore year and dropped out at any point, you owed everything back. Yeah, you had to pay, pay back. So freshman year, I'm studying computer engineering, computer science, I'm taking C++. I'm actually, for the first time, really studying hard on these classes. Uh, I, I joined a fraternity and my fraternity brother who was working for Apple in college uh, was the tutor for the school and no one ever went to tutoring. So I had my own private tutor in my fraternity. I mean, I really, it's the only time in my life I've really buckled down and I still was making C's in my classes. And at the end of that freshman year, I was like, mm, it ain't going to get any easier. I need to make some real decisions here. Uh, right across the street, literally out the window of our pool room, uh, the billiards, not a, we didn't have a swimming yeah, pool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. we weren't that fancy of a fraternity house. Uh, literally right out the window, we stared at to the football field into the school, uh, De La Salle High School there in Chicago, in the Chicago Catholic League. So I decided to drop out after spring semester, called up the track coach, wanted to see if he just, just needed a volunteer, just, you know, a couple days a week. I started working at, at a gym and a hotel in downtown Chicago and stuff. And he actually said he was looking for a full-time assistant coach. And uh, yeah, it's just funny how these things work out. You know, I was a, basically a miler, uh, half miler, again, poor miler, half miler uh, in high school. So he asked me, he's like, what, what would you coach? And I was like, well, I was, you know, it's kind of a half miler. I'll probably coach mid-distance and distance. And he was like, well, that's, that's what I coach. I'm the distance coach. I was really looking more for sprints and hurdles. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd coach that. I did hurdles. And he was like, oh, okay. And I became the assistant coach. So after that first year, remember, I'm sophomore age, so I'm 19. Next year, I've turned 20 or whatever. He retires. And somehow I convince the school, the, uh, we didn't have a principal, we had a father, you know, it was a Catholic school, yeah. uh, to give this 20-year-old non-teacher the head coaching job. I still don't know, uh, you know, I ended up being a pretty good recruiter through my college career, so it must have started pretty early. I recruited this guy pretty well. <laughs> so to be the head coach, I switched jobs at that hotel. I actually switched to a security uh, job, security officer job, so that I could work midnights. So I worked 11 at night till seven in the morning, drove to my apartment, slept until about one, drove back down South Chicago to be at practice at two, practice until you know five, six o'clock, whatever, went home, grabbed a bite to eat, rinse and repeat, 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning, every day for a year, just so I could be the head coach. What was, going from being a high school athlete to a year later being one year older than the seniors and needing to guide guide those athletes was that was that crazy did it, or did the kids not notice or what was that experience like uh, they were probably too distracted with my accent um, I, I still had a very heavy a southern accent that still comes out every once in a while when I'm talking to someone from down south. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the tough Chicago people, they, they beat it out of you real quick. So you learn that Midwestern tone pretty quickly. Um, you know, looking back, I can, you know, it was, it was crazy. What is a 19, 20 year old kid leading 18 year old kids in Chicago? I'm 
you know, the town I grew up in didn't even have 10,000 people. And here I am in millions of people. I mean, I was fish out of water here. Uh, but in the moment, you know, there really wasn't. There, uh, we just, it just ain't like it. we hung out. So I didn't have to worry about alcohol. I, heck, I wasn't even old enough to drink and things like that. So um, we just coached. Now, also looking back, I can't believe what I did for workouts. I mean, like every once in a while, one of the kids will pop up on Facebook. And the very first thing I do is I just apologize to him. Like, man, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know what I was <laughs> doing to you. Uh, I've learned since then. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> what was going from, uh, hey, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an assistant coach to being a head coach in one year. That is not the norm. You know, there's a, usually a longer uh, mentor-mentee kind of relationship and learning the ropes. What, what was that experience like? Yeah. Uh, and at the time, um, I don't know how many people might remember this. You probably only really maybe remember this if you were in Chicago, although this became national news. A couple blocks from our school, we were a couple blocks from our school was uh, now, I don't know what it's called now, but it was Comiskey Park. So we're right there where sure. the Chicago White Sox are, 35th and State, which is also, you know, Robert Taylor Homes. It's not a good neighborhood and stuff like that. Um, but Armor Park, I believe it's called, is right there. And this uh, little kid just got, uh, I don't remember if he died or not, but I mean, got beat up. It was a racial incident. And it really, it shut down. Like De La Salle closed down for a couple of days. And I remember we had a, I think it was a JV meet. I don't think it was varsity uh, scheduled that they, the school said, look, no activities. We don't want our, we don't want our kids to be out somewhere and some other kid make a smart remark or whatever. I again, somehow convinced the school to let me take these kids to this meet. And I just told them, I was like, first of all, a, we don't have those problems on our team, uh, which was maybe probably naive to be real honest with you. But, uh, but two, I'll, I'll watch over, like, I'll make sure we stay together. And, and I remember, you know, again, I'm 20 years old. Um, but I remember the bus ride over. I remember standing up saying, hey, you know, if there are problems, if we have a, a racial problem here, let's deal with it now. You talk to me. We'll get this figured out real quick because we ain't tolerating any of this junk. Uh, and we went. F, no, no problems. We had a, a great meet from what I can remember. And, um, but it was definitely, you know, I was definitely too young to be the head coach. But um, you know, the kids aren't scarred. They, they, they survived. <laughs> Maybe they're scarred. <laughs> they're, they survived. <laughs> you know, I think every, we're, we're all learning on the job, but uh, you know, there, there are certain, there, there's a spectrum of learning on the job and I can, you know, I remember learning a lot about being a head coach, but I had been an assistant for a lot of years mm -hmm. in track and field before I took that thing over. And uh, man, uh, I was, I was so happy to hand it off when I was done. Cause I, I still hadn't learned all the stuff I should know about uh, being a head coach. I would, mm. as I wanted to just hustle back over to the throwing area uh, on a daily basis. <laughs> what, uh, how many years were you there and what was next? Yeah. Uh, just those two, the one year as assistant, one year as, as head. Uh, I, uh, I had a pretty good hurdler, uh, who ended up going to UMKC and being the, um, it's now a defunct conference, but whatever the conference was, uh, athlete of the year, he, he was a pretty good kid. But I had introduced him to Troy University down in Alabama. Um, he was a mid-major type kid. He wasn't a Big Ten uh, type uh, of athlete. But um, so I was talking to the Troy head coach uh, about Willie and the hurdler, Willie White. And um, 
the, the coach, Bob Lambert, made a statement about his sprints and hurdles coach is uh, an undergrad assistant uh, who finished up his eligibility for football and so was finishing out his degree coaching track. And because I'd asked Bob uh, about coaching college, you know, we get that a lot about high school coaches that want to coach in college. And certainly my ego was already thinking, man, I'm a head coach at 20 in Chicago. I should be coaching college, you know. Uh, again, I wasn't ready. <laughs> um, but I asked Bob, I'm like, hey, I'm 20 years old. I'm the head high school coach of a major city. You know, it's not like I'm middle nowhere Alabama head coach. You know, that's, that's a pretty big deal. If in 10 years, do you think I could get a college job? And uh, it, it's interesting. He was really wrong. What he said was, maybe on the D3 level, which now knowing, you know, being in this, this, uh, this track and field community for so long, I'm like, oh, yeah, God, no, you really need to have your degree in D3. <laughs> um, but he goes on D1 and D2, he goes, yeah, you're going to need a degree. And that's when he mentioned his undergrad coach. So I didn't think much about it. I hung up for the night. And the next day, I was kind of replaying the conversation. And I was like, wait a minute his sprints coach uh, used up his eligibility for football and is now working to finish his undergrad. Well, gosh, even the, and I remember thinking this, or saying it kind of in my head, uh, even the dumbest football player gets a degree in about five years. So this, this kid's got to be done. Got to be close, you know? You're so, entering territory where I don't know if I can defend you, Mike. I just want to know yeah, you're on your own on this one. Keep I, going. Okay. Though. Keep yeah, going. If you want to know me, though, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I called him the next day and was like, Hey, you mentioned your undergrad coach was a football player. Is he, is he graduating this, this semester? And he's like, well, yeah, he is. And I was like, is that a position you are going to replace? And he's like, well, I guess I do. It was literally <laughs> his thought process. Yeah. And I said, so I said, well, Bob, uh, I said, coach, coach, uh, it seems like you need a sprints and hurdles coach and I need a degree. Uh, what about me? And he's like, you know, I'd be bringing you back home. That's not a bad idea. You got to get accepted. So, you know, apply and all that. And I remember uh, at that point, that was kind of my click of like, okay, this is now what I want to do for my life. I want to be a, a track coach and specifically a college track coach. So when it came time to apply, you got to list, you know, what do you want for your major? You remember I was a failed computer science, computer engineering major. So I certainly wasn't going to pick anything like that. So I'm looking through the different degrees that Troy State offered. And, you know, you kind of go to the physical ed. You think about, you know, being a, maybe a PE teacher. And, uh, you know, certainly wasn't going to do kinesiology and biomechanics. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not smart enough for that. So I'm still, you know, I'm kind of going down the list. And I get to this major. And I was like, oh, oh, this is it. This is, this is, I could do, this is easy. And I can focus on the track. I became a public relations major at Troy. So I got a BS and BS essentially. <laughs> the salesman who the salesman had already been emerging for two years in these last two job gets and yeah. now you're going to hone your craft. <laughs> so I had a great time. Uh, you know, that university means everything to me. Uh, my, my firstborn son, my son's name is Troy after that university. Cause that is where I found direction faith, friends, life, that university did everything. So I, I got out of college, got a degree with zero uh, student debt. Um, I, I owe everything to that college and the people more specifically at that college. That is so cool. What was the crucible of being in a college coaching world and 
probably still continuing to need to learn, but um, maybe not being in such a small where you were the person and you were supposed to know everything. And now you kind of shift to someone who you had mentors. And what was that process like as a college coach, a young college coach? I had some uh, pretty good people that came in and out of the Troy system as coaches. Uh, in fact, one of the very first hires we made uh, for jumps and uh, sprints, I became kind of his assistant on the sprints and hurdle side. Uh, was a, now again, a brother of mine, Chris Baptista. He's at Cal Poly Slow now. Um, but he came down. He had uh, participated in track at UAB. And uh, he and I just clicked right off the bat, you know, and, now looking back, you know, I was his best man at his wedding. He was in my, I mean, the last names may be different, but we're, we're family. Um, so learned a lot from him and really learned from him about if I, you know, he was a Knies major and all that kind of stuff. So he was smart in that sense. But what he also did really well was you, you can't just learn it from books. You, you really have to learn it from other coaches. So uh, I had, um, when I was coaching up at De La South in Chicago, I had come down to Indiana University for a coaching clinic that they had done. Uh, and the guy who was the assistant then became the head coach uh, named Marshall Goss. I don't know if you would know him, kind of being in the Midwest. He, he uh, sprints hurdles, jumps coach guy. Uh, but he did the hurdles at that clinic, and it really it made sense. Like I was like, oh, okay, this is maybe how you're supposed to coach hurdles. Um, and so when I was at Troy, I was still going up to Chicago in the summers. I was actually working for the Chicago Park District in the summers doing youth camps, um, one year basketball, one year soccer, one year track. Uh, this was during the heyday. Like everybody who's watching that Bulls um, documentary right now, yep. which I got I to get caught up on, uh, that was during the time. Was, this was, you know, 96, 97, so this is the heyday. So every sport you coached, you know, soccer, track, it just turned into basketball. That's like we today we're going to play basketball at yeah. the soccer clinic. Yeah, we would they pick up the soccer ball, start shooting because there's hoops everywhere in Chicago. Uh, we would start doing baton, you know, relay type stuff. They'd start shooting the baton into the it was all bad. Every camp was basketball. Um, but I, I called Marshall and said, uh, hey, uh, you know, I've, I'm up in uh, Chicago again. Uh, would you mind if I came down to Bloomington, allow me to buy you lunch, and we just talk track? And he was like, sure. He's like, bring a change of clothes. I was like, that's weird. Okay. Uh, so I get down to Bloomington, Indiana, probably around noonish or whatever. And Joe, I'm telling you, this guy, he basically kidnapped me. I, I was not allowed to leave until after dinner on Sunday. So we spent, boy, I'm telling you what, there's, you know, maybe we got six hours of sleep, but I tell you what, we spent a good portion of 24 hours going over everything with track, not just coach. We talked a ton about coaching sprinters and jumpers and hurdlers, uh, but we went over recruiting, you know, what he looks for in a kid and things like that. Uh, he showed me, he probably wasn't supposed to do this. Uh, he showed me the budgets for Indiana. He's like, here's how we break down recruiting and equipment. I mean, it, it was just, it was, it was the crash course of how to be a, a big 10 head coach. Uh, he had just gotten um, promoted uh, to the head coaching job from there uh, and, and just really showed me a, the ropes, but also b what it's like to be a giver in this world. He gave me everything. Uh, and so that thirst of knowledge from others continued. And I, boy, if I knew you, I picked your brain and, 
Uh, you know, eventually, uh, USATF coaching education became a huge deal in my life of taking courses and then becoming a teacher. I taught level one for many, many years. Uh, so it was just a, at that point, it was just a ongoing battle to always learn more. You know, that strikes a chord with me. I, I've always felt like the throwing coaches community is so giving. I think it's a track trait. And obviously, there are other walks of life that, you know, people will open book. Here's what I figured out. Let me share this with you. Um, and, you know, the, the transfer of knowledge, the idea that, you know, people are like, I'm going to go in my basement and like invent the new way to train everyone and it's going to be correct is is absolutely baloney we are all kind of uh representations of all the people that we've come across and all the things we've collected but i uh i really uh admire the the folks who are allow themselves to be open books and share and pass it forward and uh it's something i try to emulate as so many people have given me things uh to, to pass it back to you know the next person and some of the young coaches that that uh, have gone through my program and now, you know, as throwers and now are, are, are throws coaches, which is a really cool thing. And to have those kind of people who are beacons uh, that are willing to share is so cool. That, that's a great term right there, the beacon, because they do attract people that want to learn from them. Uh, and, you know, it's funny when you say about, you know, you're talking about coaches who share and, you know, obviously it means there's coaches that don't share. It, you know, it's kind of like, who do you think you are that you're not going to share? You didn't invent that knowledge that's in your head. Uh, let's be real here. While we're certainly learning more about the human body every year, and so there's new things that come out with training, your drills and tricks and tips and all that, that came from someone who coached you or someone you saw at a clinic. Who do you think you are to not pass that along? You don't own that knowledge. Yeah, you know, it's constantly evolving, certainly. Um... And uh, I think coaches who are really in tune with what they're doing and then make adjustments based on what they're doing and how that, what the results are. But um, yeah, it's all derivative. It's all, it all came from, you know, someplace and lots of places sometimes. And I'm going to take this and this and combine it. And, and mm -hmm. um, I'm often talking about, you know, levels of invention. There's very few, uh, I have invented fire. I have invented the wheel. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it. we're much more at the, uh, the level nowadays where, you know, I'm going to take a toothbrush and attach it to a battery and the toothbrush is going to move, you know, the, you know <laughs> whoever invented that didn't invent the toothbrush nor the battery, but uh, right, I've combined right. some, you know, combined and, uh, my teeth are cleaner. Thank you. <laughs> So how long were you at Troy? Uh, took me three years and a summer semester to get my, my illustrious uh, public relations degree. And it wasn't ROTC, but you found a way to get that sucker paid for. Uh, yeah, they paid for it all, man. Like I said, I'm eternally grateful, no doubt. And what, uh, so the, the undergrad assistant job, obviously, uh, was no longer a true fact as you graduate and what came next? Yeah. So, uh, the real world, I had to go find a real paying job at this point. Um, I don't, I don't even know if we had GAs, but I, you know, knowing me and my academic side, I probably was like, ah, I'm good. I'm done with school. Um, so I applied to a bunch of different places. Can't remember any except for the job that I got. Uh, but I ended up getting the head coaching job at a junior college in Kansas called Yosho County community college. Um, 
and honestly, you know, again, super young, too young to be a head coach of a college program, even one that was in as disarray as Neosho County was back then. Um, but it never, I don't know if, if, if being that head coach at De La Salle just put it in my head that I'm a head coach. So it was like, oh, I'm, they're going to hire me for the head coach. Cool. Let's go do it. What was that experience like? Uh, um, junior college track world is very different from Troy's track world, probably. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I do jokingly slash it's a little bit serious. Say I did my year of jail in Chinook, Kansas and moved on. But um, when I got there, so I started in, uh, you know, I graduated or my spring semester was over in May, drove straight out there. Uh, when I got there, like I said, it was in disarray. They only had, if I remember correct, I think they only had three athletes coming back that fall. Um, so I knew that, and, 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 and I don't know how maybe it's changed now, but definitely back then it was very much a, uh, what they call heads and beds. They wanted the track team to have a hundred because they got money from the state or whatever. Uh, so they certainly weren't happy that three kids is all they would have on a track and field team. They're probably right to be not so happy. So um, I, I didn't know what else to do. You know, internet was still, this is 2000. I graduated in 2000, so this is uh, May and June of 2000. Uh, so I didn't know what else to do but to, uh, do you remember that, I don't know if they still have this or not, that directory of every high school in America, you know, the big yeah, kind of silver, gray I have, cover. I have to think that that thing's online now, but yeah, I think I've seen something like that. So I had that, uh, whether they, it was there or whatever. I, sw I moved to Kansas and I literally called every track coach in the state of Kansas uh, asking, now think about it, it's May and June, 99% of kids know where they're going. <laughs> uh, and I'm at junior college. So if they're really good and they got grades, they ain't coming to junior college. They're going to Kansas state and LSU and what have you. Uh, so I called every coach and asked, Hey, who do you have left? Who has not decided who has run track, who has a pulse and ran track? I, I got to get them here. We kind of had, uh, if I remember right, maybe unlimited in-state scholarships for tuition and uh, books and fees, but they had to pay their room and board. Uh, that was kind of how the, the state money came in or something. I, I, I again, remember a long time ago. Um, and so I called around and I ended up getting, we ended up with, uh, let's say somewhere between 15 and 20 kids starting fall semester. So not, not a bad job. Um, Especially late in the game. Yeah, yeah, and, and didn't have that many kids to coach. Had some pretty good, uh, well, I had a 50-foot triple jumper that failed out of some other school that uh, a guy that I knew when I was at Troy, he sent him to me and things like that, but I didn't have very many kids. So that whole year, I recruited my tail off. That, I, I wasn't a head coach. I was a recruiter that whole year. Yeah. Um, the big bad boys then were Barton and Lance Brahman, uh, who um, you know started, you know, Lance was, and if anybody out there listening knows Lance, he is awesome. He really is. Uh, he was the man. No one beat him. It was Barton, and then you were you were basically going for second place. Uh, and I mean that even on recruits. If a lot of uh, coaches, if they called and the recruits said, "Yeah, I'm looking at Barton," they they wouldn't recruit him. They're like, "All right, well, you're just going to go Barton." And I I I said, "Bull crap! If Barton's going to beat me, then they're going to beat me." But I'm going to go after it. And so that year, I signed three of the top high hurdlers in the country. Uh, all three are from Jersey, 13-3, 13-4, 13-5, something like that. Uh, signed the number two pole vaulter in the country from over in Indiana, the number one indoor 600-meter kid from Philly, um, a 36.3 and a hurdler from down in Texas. I mean, I, I 
I got some kids, man. I was excited uh, for what the future was going to hold. I, I, I think it's still to this day uh, at, for that year, not overall, but for that year. So the 2001 uh, recruiting season, I think it was the number one recruiting class, regardless of division. The salesman emerges. Oh <laughs> uh, man, I just gave him an option. It's like, Hey man, you can come here and get better. I don't know that I can make you better, but <laughs> I'm sure I didn't tell him that part. <laughs> So that only lasted one year. What, what, uh, what, what happened? Yeah. You need, to, you need to get out of there. You know what happened? No, I well, two things happened. One, the, the needing to get out part. So my budget was $8,000 when I had 15 kids, as I'm signing these kids, you know, I'm going not to the athletic director. I'm going to the president and saying, Hey, I'm, I've got 30 kids signed up already. I'm going to need more money. Hey, I've got 50 kids signed up. And he would squarely look me in the eye and say, you bring the kids in, we'll get it taken care of. Uh, I started that fall semester of the second year. Uh, so I've got a, uh, my, my memory says 100 kids, but maybe it was 70 or 80. It was, it was a big clip uh, yeah. higher uh, and got my budget at $8,000 again, not even one red cent. Um, so there, there was the, hey, I need to get out. They're, they're not going to take care of the kids I bring in. That's you know, I told these kids, Hey, we're going to do X and Y and Z. And, uh, and then it was like, man, I, I can't even rent buses because you had to go from vans to buses. I can't even rent buses for these kids. So, um, that, that was one. And then the other one, the, maybe the, one of the most coveted assistant coaching jobs in the country came open at the university of Oregon. And, uh, again, the recruiting side of me came out. I bombarded Martin Smith with every ounce of my being so uh, I had every coach that I knew write fat you know we used to fax back then uh, fax write uh, email a recommendation I had my football coach from Troy University uh, fax in a recommendation saying yeah Mike worked with our with my football kids I would trust him with football players for the you know that kind of, I was playing that angle and one day I'm in the, the office and my phone rings, uh, the first place I ever had a cell phone. So I was pretty kind of, I felt kind of big, big time back then. Um, but I, I answer it and it's, he goes, Hey, this is Martin Smith from university of Oregon. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, it worked. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he tells me, he goes, man, Mike, he goes, you're not going to believe it, but I've had so many people call me fax, uh, email tell, to about you. He goes, I feel like I just, I have to interview you. And I was like, oh, my God, it worked. I cannot believe this. Um, so he interviews me over the phone. You know, full disclosure, it was just a phone interview. But um, not knowing Martin, I now look back and realize I screwed up. So I told him, hey, I realize you're at Oregon. You have to win with distance. I get it. Uh, I'm probably not going to have a lot of scholarships. So you know, that's why I want to work with the football team, et cetera. Well, anybody who knows Martin, he wants a full team. So, you know, here I was kind of giving this defeatist attitude. And he's like, yeah, 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 not having a kid. Um, so he ends up hiring some guy named Steve Sylvie. I don't know if you know Steve Sylvie. You know, had won like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten national championships with Arkansas. I'm not sure what Martin was thinking there, hiring such a qualified Bare, coach. Barely qualified. Barely qualified. Barely, barely. Uh, but what happened was the uh, after they announced um, that Sylvie was going to get the job, the, uh, the other assistant coach, uh, Bill Lawson, called me up and said, hey, Mike, 
uh, I, and I had no clue. I never knew Bill at this point. Uh, he goes, Hey, I just want to call you up. He goes, um, I, I need to get to know you a little bit better. You're 25 years old and you just had an interview for maybe the most coveted assistant job in this country. Tell me more about yourself. And, you know, so we talked a little bit and, uh, I had already had uh, Sue Parks at Ball State tell me that if I didn't get the Oregon job, she would hire me at, at Ball State on the women's side because her assistant had uh, moved on to be the head coach at Western Michigan. And, uh, and so I asked Lawson point blank. I said, hey, Bill, help me out here. I was like, I, I didn't get the Oregon job, obviously. Uh, he, I told him all the kids that I had coming in. I was like, I, you know, I, if I don't win nationals this year, it's like, give me another recruiting class on top. And I, I will be beat Barton the, the next year. I was like, or I can, I can go to Ball State. What would you do? And, you know, I remind Lawson of this uh, quite often. In fact, I just was on the phone with him a week ago and I reminded him this. He tells me, he goes, Mike, every year we go into the JUCO ranks and we get the best athletes. He goes, very rarely do we go in and get the best coaches. Now it's changed a little bit. There's a lot of junior college coaches that are making the leap to division one. I. I think there's this, maybe the stigma is released or something, but back then uh, there wasn't that many, even Lance Brahman had been at Barton for quite a few years and had not made the, the quote unquote leap to division one. And he was awesome. He was one of the best friends coaches in the country. So um, Lawson says, if you really want to coach division one, he's like, maybe you need to get back under the division one rule book. Cause uh, I'll tell you what the division one rule book is, uh, you know, two inches thick. The Juco rule book is, uh, you know, it's a couple pages stapled together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I hung up I, and when I say hung up, I, the, the receiver never left my ear. I just pressed the, uh, the little hang up button and immediately called Sue Parks and said, uh, I'll be out there next weekend. There you have it. There I have it. That was Muncie, Indiana. <laughs> um, I don't want to fast forward too far, but at some point you break up with coaching and mm -hmm. you move on. Yep. What, what was the impetus for that change? And uh, obviously eventually it brings you to Gill. Yeah. You know, the, the next two coaching jobs are, are what does it. So at Ball State, uh, working on the women's side there, we had uh, just a, a group of girls that we were always in the hunt for the MAC title. So Every single kid on that team was important. Uh, you know, the, the, girl, the, the woman that gets eighth place in the high jump that scores one point, well, that could be the one point that helps us win the title. You know, it was that close to win the title there in the, in the MAC. Um, it just had a, just a fierce, just great kids. I told them, run through that wall, it'll make you faster, and they would have ran through that wall. Uh, my whole goal was to get to the – quote-unquote big time and for me the SEC was the big time I grew up in Alabama so it you know I wanted to get to the SEC and I finally uh I should say finally I got there pretty early but yeah I made it and I get there and let me tell you I love the people that we have on staff at Mississippi State uh Al Schmidt now the former head coach is still big daddy Al to me uh is like a father figure to me Steve Dudley, who was the head coach until just recently, uh, you know, he's the one who actually pushed to, to hire me there at Mississippi State. Um, Angela and Keith Powell, uh, gosh, K-Rad, Houston Franks, all the coaches there, Kurt Thomas, are, are still like family to me. So it has nothing to do with the coaching staff. But at Mississippi State, we did not have the ability to have the depth to win the conference. 
we did have the ability to get five to 10 really good kids qualified for nationals and win nationals. So our goal there uh, was to win nationals. And I tell you, that is not a, a team atmosphere. And that really, really weighed on me. Um, There's so, with, so many college programs where I think they have to make a choice between what kind of team they're going to, what kind of team they're going to be and how, how they're going to compete. Are they going to compete at the conference level, which yeah. takes depth? Uh, yes. Or are you going to try to find the studs uh, or coach your best kids into being studs and try to compete at the national level? Yep. So that on top of that, my last year at Mississippi State, we had a controversy with one of our athletes, uh, unfairly. Uh, the kid was uh, should not have been in this controversy. The, the, the media, the, uh, it was letsrun.com and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and really, really soured me on that level of track and field. Um, you know, it's not just the purity of coaching track at that point. There's politics involved, et cetera. And, um, you know, it was my 10th year, um, you know, through 10 years, uh, much like you, Joe, you know, I've had kids that uh, had gotten in trouble, parents had passed away, things like that. And I was always there for that kid in some shape or form and with our kid and what happened that last year it went to the politics side and to the courts and to the governing bodies and there was nothing I could do first of all as an assistant coach but just because it went to to the court side you know my my hands were handcuffed and so uh you know honestly that last year that 10th year I said um you know what I've doing I've been doing this for 10 years I made it to the to the top goal that I wanted was to be in the SEC let's get away from track and field and see if it brings me back. Uh, and at that time I had been playing a ton of poker, uh, Mississippi. There's a lot of, well, at that time there was a lot of, um, poker and it was in its heyday with internet poker and world series and stuff like that. So I literally, I'd never been before. I literally put in my two weeks notice and packed all my stuff up and drove to Las Vegas and became a professional poker player. I did not know that. <laughs> How did professional poker playing going? This is a tangent I wasn't expecting to go down. <laughs> uh, you know, I am extremely glad I did it. I am extremely glad I don't do it anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I was not married, no kids, so there was no strings attached. I didn't have to. I, don't, I only had to worry about myself. And um, so, you know, it was cool. Like, I mean, you're playing a game essentially for a living. Um, you learn a lot about the value of a dollar and it's actually not a dollar is not worth a lot. It's, uh, it's really the people that surround yourself, uh, that you surround yourself with is really the value of, of money and life and things like that. Um, but you know, it was cool when I first got out there. It was the Vegas life. Uh, I played nonstop. I'd wake up at two o'clock every afternoon. Uh, the only reason I woke up at two was because fear factor was on at two out there. So I'd wake up for an hour, watch <laughs> Joe Rogan, uh, do a spear factor thing, get up, shower, eat breakfast. You know, I'd have some kind of sandwich or whatever, hit the casino by uh, six, seven o'clock. And sometimes I was home at six, seven o'clock in the morning, sometimes uh, 20, 30, 40 hours later, routinely play 20, 30, 40 hours in a row and then come home and crash for, you know, a day or whatnot. But I did it every day, all day, no days off, no, uh, you know, no working out. Um, I just, I played cards, man. It was, I was collecting points. Every chip was a point. That's, that's what it became. 
how long did that, how long were you able to sustain that? Yeah, you know, uh, a, a whole year actually. Um, and then it just got to the point where, you, you know, it's, it's weird to say, but you, you miss the sun. You, you don't see the sun as a professional gambler because you're always inside and all action happens at night. You know, there's no one, well, I mean, there are some people that are playing, where, I was playing pretty high that were playing at 11 o'clock in the morning, but those were, you know, you just didn't want to be around those people. <laughs> you needed tourists. That's who you wanted. Uh, so you slept until night when all the tourists got there to drink and you do the Vegas thing and put on your charm and try to take their money. You know? So tell us about Gill Athletics, Mike. What do you, what do you do there now? And uh, uh, how did that come to be? Well, I tell you, again, the theme of this whole thing is, you know, God just having his hand on my back and moving me to places. Uh, I had met uh, a now former uh, sales rep from Gill back when I was coaching actually at Troy. And uh, so, you know, at, at Gill, we talked to quote unquote, all, every coach in the country. So we know a lot of jobs that are opening and things like that. So I, uh, I probably emailed my Gill guy back then and just said, Hey, I'm coming back. I want to get back to the coaching world. What do you know that's open? And, uh, and he was like, well, he's like, uh, actually, we're going to have a job opening. And he had talked to me before about coming to Gill. In fact, he, poor timing on his part. He talked to me about it right when I got to Mississippi State. And I was like, dude, I'm not done. I just got to the SEC. Like, this has been the whole goal. And I, I'm not leaving. Get out of here, you know. Uh, fast forward, you know, three years later, and I'm a poker player. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they brought me in for my interview, which I tell you what, man, it, going through the factory and seeing it, it's, it's kind of like Disney World for track and field coaches. Uh, it, it was pretty eye-opening. I, I thought I knew about track and track equipment. Man, until you actually see this stuff being made, it's, it's, it's like no other. Um, but, yeah, so they uh, interviewed me. Thank God. My, the guy who interviewed me is still my boss today, Steve Vogelsang. Love him to the death. And uh, basically said, uh, hey, you get to go home at 5 o'clock most nights. Uh, you still get to hang out and talk track all the time. Uh, you get to go to all the biggest track meets in the world. Uh, there's no pressure for you to win at those meets, by the way. You get to, everybody's your friend. <laughs> uh, oh, and we're going to pay you more than you ever made coaching. <laughs> I was like, where do I sign? Why are we doing this? Come on, man. Let's get started. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to focus you right into the throws now. What is the coolest freaking thing? that you get to see in the gill in in that warehouse in that in that uh manufacturing corners of of your facilities for the throws in terms of discs shots equipment yeah. uh what's the coolest stuff what's the coolest behind the scenes thing you can tell us so i love history which is funny because i don't think i passed a single history class in my academic career. Uh, but I do love the history of our sport, uh, even so as it relates to the history of manufacturing. So, uh, you know, we are the, um, I don't know if this is true anymore, because I think there's a, a guy or two making javelins here in America now, but for most of the, of the world, we were the only makers of javelins in North America, all the other javelin guys, you know, over in Europe. And one of the families that really, created javelins and a manufacturing process were the held but uh dick and bud held and so those guys uh dick held specifically worked for um 
OTE and things like that to make these javelins. And OTE was the Oregon track equipment company where we bought OTE, I guess, I want to say around 2000, it was before me. Uh, but the, the, the machines that make those jav that, that Dick held, built with his own hands to make javelins, we still use those today. That's so we, cool. We, we haven't read, you know, built it or, you know, it's, it's had some parts replaced, but it is the exact same machines. And even the processes, the, the Dick Held's protege was a gentleman named Steve Benjamin. And also Ron Wall was, was there in the throws area for OTE, making the Hollywood discus and uh, the uh, indoor shots and things like that. Those guys moved to Champaign. They still today, I, I saw them just today. I was in the office today, uh, work for us. So the same knowledge, passion, craftsmanship that Dick Held worked to create the dick held javelins and the held javelins things like that are still used today passed along with the same machines that they used it is you ever seen willy wonka's chocolate factory oh it's, yeah absolutely it's kind of that it's this machine that you know I, you know not a, i'm so terrible at this stuff uh you know up and down and i swear i hear the the machines the uh, <laughs> machines from <laughs> Willy Wonka. <laughs> there i'm not doing it justice there is a really cool uh the show how it's made on the discovery yeah. channel they came out to our place uh i think it was back in 08 it was it was one of the uh, olympic years and filmed our javelin process so if you youtube how it's made javelins i've seen it, it. walks yeah it walks really you through cool. the process that's steve the hands that you see those are steve benjamin's hands uh and it walks you through how we make a, a javelin and it is it's really cool man it, i i do enjoy that part of our factory that's awesome so you've been there for is is it four, 14 years this fall will be 14 yep you've gotten to travel to some of the coolest you know, track events, championships, NCAAs, you know, at every level, what are some of the things that stand out to you in terms of uh, performances that you might've been, I got to see this because, you know, I was, I was there representing Gil and I got to watch some track. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could do a podcast just on that. Uh, but that's boring because there's a lot of great performances and athletes and coaches that have seen some amazing things. Uh, but I will tell you something that was pretty special uh, for me uh, for many reasons. There was a personal connection. I knew the kid, uh, knew the coach, and, and honestly, through our podcast, I've gotten to know the coach even more so. But watching Ashton Eaton set the world record in the decathlon, uh, that, was, that was pretty special for so many reasons. Um, obviously, the athletic ability itself was amazing uh but, you know the weather was horrible so it wasn't like he did it in perfect weather and then you know he's the son of Oregon for crying out loud so he had all 20 something thousand whatever was in the stands you know cheering his every move that kid I think he spit out bubble gum once and they just went crazy you know, making that up but uh but that was pretty special um and you know another one that sticks out is uh one of the USATF meets I was uh, maybe 20, 30 rows up from the um, finish line. And it was the half mile. And the three guys that made it all had some Oregon connection. I'm probably going to butcher this. Like um, maybe one was an Oregon, like ran for the University of Oregon. And then two others ran for the Oregon Track Club or something like that. 
Uh, in fact, the, whoever got third, I remember, had to dive to make third, to make the Olympic team. And, you know, I've been in NFL games. I've been at, you know, big University of Alabama, Auburn University football, you know, big time crowds. I have never to this day been in a stadium that was louder as far as people cheering and just going nuts than that 800 meter final. Uh, it was really, really exciting. For a sprints hurdles guy, it made the 800 really, really stinking uh, cool, man. It was so, it was so loud. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, we'll come back to the podcast because I, I love the listening to Harry Mara talk about yes um, some of the stories and just you know incredible. And so yes. those are the those are the types of things um, that I think both of us get excited about uh, yes. in the podcasting is is to kind of draw and pull these stories out and and get them out there because uh, that's the stuff that gets us geeked up about our thing. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about, you've had a very unique career in terms of you, you've been a coach at multiple levels, high school, junior college, uh, division one. You've been to the biggest meets. You, you talk to track coaches all the time um, through Gill. What are some of the traits that you see that, that coaches who are successful share? You've probably been in contact with more track coaches than than a whole bunch of people on the planet and uh i just am fascinated by the fact that um you've probably rubbed elbows with some of the best of the best uh definitely blessed uh for who i have been able to talk with and meet with and uh pick the the brains of uh, there's just the most phenomenal people in in the world um you know, I, I get asked a lot about, I, actually, it's not so much now after, you know, close to 14 years, but definitely the first few years at Gill, a lot of uh, my coaching friends would ask me if I missed coaching and things like that. And, and for sure, I did. There's certain aspects I absolutely missed. Uh, I always tell people during the first year at Gill, uh, at about two o'clock every day, I'd, I'd, I'd get antsy because that's when I would typically have my practices. So I felt like I was supposed to go outside at two o'clock and I had to stay in my, my office, you know. Um, but, you know, around, I want to say around year five or six, it, that's when my career really started clicking in a different way. Um, I, it, I don't know if you've ever seen, if you haven't, you, you, Joe, I'm talking to you, Joe, and anybody yeah. else listening. Uh, uh, Simon Sinek has a, I think it's on TED Talks, about your why. Not what you do or how you do it, but why you do it. And and I don't know if I watched that TED talk during year five, year six, but somewhere around there, I started realizing that I don't, I don't sell track equipment. I know my job title is sales manager or whatever, and it was sales rep or whatever back then. Uh, what I do is I help coaches coach. Uh, in, in the coaching world, and it continues to get worse every year, uh, there's many, many more paperwork for them to do. Uh, administrative work and that's extremely important that's that's actually one of the the elements I've seen in the most successful coaches it's coaches who understand that they are no matter what level they're coaching at they're running a business that this business is to make kids faster or throw further but or farther uh, but it, it is a business you are in charge of a budget and revenue etc expenditures uh, so that is definitely one key uh, but my job is really to help you as 
the coach not have to worry about that discus or that javelin or that cage so that you can focus on what your real passion is, helping a kid throw that discus farther, the javelin, etc. So that around year five, year six, that really flipped for me that I am I may not be coaching kids anymore, but I'm I'm on the staff of a lot of the for the for the programs that trust me with all of their equipment. I'm on their staff as their equipment coach so that they don't have to worry about things. They can just stay out there coaching and recruiting and the things that they have to do. Um, so that, that's been, that was a real turning point for, for me uh, yeah. uh, on how I, why I do what I do. And so I don't miss coaching at all anymore because now when I help you, Joe, I'm not just helping you. I'm helping the 30, 40, 50 kids a year that you have. So I'm actually, my influence over athletes is more indirect, but it is much expanded, much more expanded now. I, I get to help thousands of kids every year where when I was a coach, I got to help 20, 30, whatever you know, was in my program. That's a really cool way to think about it. And, 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 um, it's true. I think that some of the logistics of my job, you know, it's, it's designing workouts and doing all those things. But, you know, on a regular day, I take, take for granted that when I go into the shed, I have all the things that I need to execute the thing that I spent mm -hmm. all my time planning. Um, and so uh, it, it takes equipment to do our jobs. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, you asked what have I seen in coaches, the, what I've seen to be the most successful coaches. And, and I don't define the most successful coaches as only the guys and gals who are winning national titles or state titles or conference titles. There's a, uh, you know, as a coach, you have a ton of influence over young people in this world. So a successful coach is someone who gets a lot of kids in their program and graduates them. Those are, those are successful things, gets kids in and they improve. They may not be the national champion but they improve that to me is, is what successful uh coaches in my definition so one i said was that coach who realizes they're they're basically a ceo they're running a business the other one specifically towards throws coaches i've met uh, you know so many throws coaches they're amazing amazing probably the most handy coaches there are i mean making their own implements and training i love it it's awesome awesome the ones that I have seen that are consistently producing success, so state qualifiers, national qualifiers, champions, et cetera, are organized. You go into their shed or wherever they're storing their implements, almost to a T, the coaches that are routinely successful, they've got all their 1Ks over here and their 2Ks and their underweights and then they got their shots over here and all their hammers are, are nice and you know hanging off of the, the pegs uh, almost to a T. Uh, and then the reverse. I've seen coaches that I don't know how they can find a discus to, to have practice and they may have a good kid every once in a while, but I don't normally see those type of coaches routinely consistently putting out great kids uh good stuff good stuff mike um i want to talk about the podcast we share this in in uh common track and field and podcasting 
Um, what uh, what got you thinking? Hey, I want to I want to record some of these conversations. Um, when you started, what what uh, gave you the inspiration to get started on your podcast? Uh, you know, like a lot of things, it was a journey. Um, you know, I told you five or six years ago, things switched, and so it became. Uh, I'm I'm kind of just now actually in year fourteen, starting to get some um, verbiage. To what I, I'm actually thinking in my life for, for coaches, uh, and I'm so I'm still kind of fleshing this out. But I, I'm honestly working towards the difference between a go-getter and a go-giver. You know, in society we celebrate go-getters, right? We always talk about yeah, coach he's a real go-getter and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but go-getter is very inward. It's about me. It's me getting something. Uh, so I, I'm kind of really exploring this idea of a go-giver. So what kind of value can I give to coaches? Because uh, ultimately, I have to be able to provide value to customers so that they, they, there's so much value that they in turn give me money. You know, they got to pay for discuses and uh, javelins, etc. Because that keeps our business up. And even more important for me is the business is how many people do we employ? Can we hire more people? You know, the business is growing so much that we can hire more people and put them to work in this country. That is a real driver for me at our uh, factory. So with the podcast, um, you know, meeting so many amazing coaches out there that even in today's world of internet and cell phones and social media didn't know each other uh, or a young coach who just didn't feel like, you know, that, that Joe Frontier, he's been coaching for 20, 30. I can't just walk up, up to him and, and ask him, what does he do for a glider? It's like, no, first of all, you can't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and second of all, you should, because he's a great guy, you know. So uh, um, I started my, I've actually, this is my third podcast that I'm on, the first through Gill. Uh, but the first kind of podcast I did, I started about three years ago. I started a group on Facebook called Beyond the Track, um, really out of a, my passion for coaches as people, that there's a lot of resources out there to find, to learn how to coach a discus thrower to, to throw farther and, you know, better strength for a shot putter, those kind of things. But for our coaches, there's not a lot of resources for your mental health, physical health, uh, financial health, relationship health. There's not, you know, we... Um, we're very selfless people, but that also means we're selfish. And what I mean by that is uh, a coach who pours their whole life 24 seven into their 20, 30, 40 kids. That's extremely selfless. I mean, there's no bones about it. That's selfless. But to do that means you have to be selfish. You have things have to be put on the back burner. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times our spouses, our own children, uh, or what gets put on the back burner. And that is selfish. You're, you're not giving to those people. So, um, so I started beyond the track and started doing uh, live Facebook interviews with coaches there. So I did, I probably got eight, nine, 10, some great ones. Steve Rajewski from Michigan, Lane Schwer, now formerly of UNCW. Some really good, just talking about how they got into coaching. Uh, what, what are they, um, uh, what's a problem that they have and how can people connect with them? So that connection thing was already, already kind of starting from there. Uh, but that was through Facebook. And then I wanted to learn how to podcast and I'm a big fan. Maybe it's from my, those fear factor days, but I'm a huge fan of the Joe Rogan experience. 
Uh, I, I love his style. Uh, I love his variety of guests and topics. Very and, diverse topics. Uh, yeah. yeah. And his, uh, you know, his, he's, he's just a natural, curious person. That's what makes him such, uh, maybe the top interviewer in, in this country right now, in this world. Uh, you know, no, he has bias, but he does not portray that on his guests. And he's not afraid. In fact, almost maybe um, works towards having people who are, different from his thinking philosophy. So to learn how to podcast, how do you record and publish and market it? I started, I'm a total ripoff artist. I started the Mike Cunningham experience. Um, through my life, I've got a pretty wide variety of people in different walks of life. Um, little known fact, a, a friend of mine is a guy named Rob Van Winkle. Do you know who Rob Van Winkle uh, is? That Joe? sounds a lot like Vanilla Ice. That is, I'm actually friends with Rob. Uh, I've got plenty of backstage photo. We, well, I don't go to any concerts now because of all that, but I uh, was real good friends with his drummer. Still really, really good friends with his uh, now former drummer. Um, but I, so I, you know, just all across. So I interviewed uh, a friend of mine from high school is one of the top nuisance chefs in the world. He, he teaches people how to cook. Uh, these feral pigs and uh, lionfish that are destroying the uh, uh, reefs and stuff like that. I mean, it's just fascinating. Uh, a watchmaker, a guy who legitimately makes his own high-end, like really nice watches, actually. Um, a singer from the band Color Me Bad. Do you remember Color Me Bad? I do. We're the same age, so we remember Color Me Bad. Yeah, a singer from the band Color Me Bad. Uh, and my first guest because uh, I needed someone to like legitimize me right off the bat, right? Uh, so my first guest was a friend of mine who I've known him since he was 17 years old. Uh, I was one of the first people to recruit him, uh, a young guy named Justin Gatlin. Uh, and we talked about nothing about really about winning gold medals and stuff. We did a little bit, but actually we talked about stuff off the track, his favorite Netflix show, his pet, his little boy, Jace, who's just an amazing, gosh, that kid's same age as my kid, you know, nine, 10 years old. It's amazing. Um, so I learned podcasting through that. And then finally in January of this year, I was like, you know what? It's time. I, I need to, uh, it's a little bit like calling in favors. I was like, Hey man, I need you to, you know, you gotta be on the show for me. And, um, my first guest was a throws coach, uh, which was, you know, I think that set the tone for how we did things. You know where to start. That's... Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so now, you know, we're 30 episodes in at this point here in uh, it's almost May 2020. Um, and cannot tell you the goal is and will always remain to be giving value to connect different people in our track world, not just coaches, but other, you know, eventually we'll have officials and uh, athletes. And we've had a, um, uh, the guy who runs the track at, at uh, Albuquerque for all those national meets, we've had him on there. Uh, but the goal is always to receive, to, to give value. But I can't tell you, Joe, and I bet you, I, I, I can speak for you. I know this on, the, on this one, Joe, how much value I have received from listening to these stories, hearing them, uh, the struggles that they went through in their career to get where they are. It has been the biggest blessing I have had in my 14 years here at Yale. That's so cool. I think there is power in the people that, um, that we find value in. And, um, you know, and you, you spoke a, a while ago a little bit about redefining kind of the value of a dollar. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and so often uh, I think we can get lost in that. And I think young kids, I think, have a mixed per- a misperception. I think all, you know, I probably did as well. But uh, certainly as we get older, um, I think we find value in the stories we get to share, the people we get to spend time with, the people we learn from, uh, and family, and the expanded idea of family being, you know, our blood and then the, the people that we let into our worlds that uh, aren't necessarily our blood, but become family in other ways. And so I connections uh, resonates with me certainly. And I've certainly enjoyed listening to the Gill athletics connection podcast. So thanks for doing what you do. Oh man. Hey, again, uh, a lot of people, it's, it's amazing. No joke. And maybe they're just bored right now, but every day somebody reaches out to me, whether it's through Facebook or my phone and you know, says, hey, good job, appreciate what you're doing, thank you, love them, et cetera. Uh, all of that, times 10, I am receiving <laughs> as the host, man. Uh, so much fun, I'm so excited, uh, the guests that we have coming up. Uh, my last guest was awesome, Joe, don't get me wrong, uh, but I've got, some, uh, I've got some great ones lined up uh, to where I wanna start bringing more of not just bio interviews, I think those are fascinating, um, hopefully, you know, a lot of today was a bio interview going through the steps of my career. And I hope there was uh, value given to uh, the listeners right now on that. But uh, I also want to start talking about some more specific topics, uh, whether that is, um, you know, I'd love to talk to a coach who has gone through a program being dropped and, you know, what led up to that? What were the feelings going through that? How did you come through that? You know, how, how did you come to the other side? Um, would love to talk more about uh, coaches. Um, uh, well, I won't spoil it, but coaches have gone through health issues that have continued to come through. Um, just got so so many. There's so many great. There's so many great people whose profession is coaching track and field. Man, uh, I just want to share every stinking story out there. <laughs> I really do. It's like Pokemon, man. I want to collect them all. <laughs> well, uh, two things. One, if you need some equipment. Track down Mike Cunningham at Gill Athletics and keep listening to the Gill Athletics Connection podcast because I think as uh, it's already brought a lot of value to the, the episodes that I've listened to, to me as a coach and listening to other coaches and talk about their craft and experiences, but I'll look forward to it as it continues to evolve. Awesome. Mike Cunningham, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Dude, thank you for having me. Thank you for what you're doing with this podcast. I love the guests that you've had. Uh, I just can't thank you enough. Uh, this, this whole world revolves around coaches. I am such a huge believer in the power of coaches positively. And you are one of those, those guys that does it. And every, what the, if you're listening to this podcast, you're more than likely one of those people because people who are bad people aren't going to listen to podcasts. So you are awesome people who have a lot of value as people and have a lot of power and influence over young people that will be the people that take care of us as we get older man so you're so awesome out there and i love you all to death thank you so much to mike cunningham for being on the show if you're looking for another podcast to listen to go check out the gill athletics connections podcast that mike hosts Um, it is just chock full of fantastic track coaches from all over the country and their stories, the lessons they've learned, uh, motivation, uh, 
tips, all sorts of things. If you're a young coach, an old coach, if you're an athlete who's thinking about going into coaching, it's a great resource. Support the sponsors of the show um, by going to uh, portacircle.com and roadiesport.com. They make great products for throwers. Support them because they support our sport. If you need help throwing, go to throwbigthrowfar.com. Uh, I am here to help you. It is for throwers and coaches who want to get better. Uh, if there's a way I can help, send me a message, DM me on Instagram, or track down me on throwbigthrowfar.com or madisonthrowsclub.com. Until then, keep training, train safely, stay healthy, and throw big, throw far. Well, that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on iTunes and hit that subscribe button. As well, we'd encourage you to connect with others and share the podcast on your social media. Looking forward to next time when we connect you with another great track and field connection. Bye, guys.